The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. We at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center pursue and facilitate the study and understanding of the heritage and history of the U.S. Army. We cover the entirety of the Army, regular, National Guard, reserve, militia, and volunteer. And we also address the Confederate Army with European and Asian military history uh, included for added perspective. Within that broad coverage, we have a history of our own. Tonight, as Carl said, October 17, 2018, completes 50 years in our Perspectives in Military History public lecture series. Our institution was founded in June of 1967, and our lecture series began 16 months later. Our first speaker was Dr. Don Rickey, Jr., an authority on the Indian Wars in the second half of the 19th century, especially on the Upper Great Plains. Back then, we were called the Military History Research Collection, and Don was our assistant director. We had only one assistant director back then. Over the ensuing half century, we have changed names to the Army Military History Research Collection, the Army Military History Institute, and now the Army Heritage and Education Center. Over those decades, too, we have had a dozen assistant directors, often three or four of them simultaneously. And our perspective series has grown from intermittent to eight or nine per year to regular each month this century. Brooks Kleber Memorial Lectures and Military History Roundtables have been added for good measure. Almost all of the General Harold Keith Johnson Professors of Military History from Theodore Ropp and Russell Wigley in academic years 1973 and 1974 to William Allison and Robert Citino in academic year 2014 gave perspectives presentations. Doctors Allison and Citino served in the Army War College Faculty School of Strategic Land Power, AWC. Many other prospective lecturers also came from the Army War College faculty, from John Trussell and Charles Hall in the early 1970s to Stephen Garris and Leonard Wong just last year. And we see here in the audience tonight Don Boos and Len Fullenkamp, Henry Gohl, and Tony Echevarria uh, has made a forced march and arrived in, in uh, just the proper time to, to be recognized. We even welcome talks by two published officers while AWC students, Peter Mansour and Thomas T. Smith, 
in the class of 2003. Understandably, we availed ourselves of our own staff, among them our founder, Colonel George Pappas, other directors from Colonel James Agnew to Lieutenant Colonel Mark Viney, and I dare say that Colonel Perry is somewhere within this building and often makes uh, an appearance as well, and uh, we're honored by the arrival of another one of our uh, former Johnson professors, uh, Dr. Tammy Biddle. And of course, we drew on uh, our own staff members, and in the room here we have J Jack Giblin and David Keough, uh, Conrad Crane, and, and myself. We, however, did not confine ourselves to members of our own AHEC and AWC. We welcome presentations by senior Army officers, Generals Melvin Zace, Don Starry, Gordon Sullivan, H.R. McMaster, and Kenneth Privratsky. We also heard from GIs of World War II and field grade officers of Operation Iraqi Freedom, history professors, scholars, authors, and journalists make up most of our presentation of perspectives. To mention all of them would consume all of our time, and that's not why we came here. And to mention only some of them would seem invidious, but let me give just a sample to survey their stature. Rick Atkinson, Edwin Bars, Clay Blair, Elliot Cohen, David Eisenhower, Joseph Galloway, David Kennedy, James McPherson, Alan Millett, Forrest Pogue, James I. Robertson, T.J. Stiles, Barbara Tuckman, and Robert Utley. Our speaker tonight, Sir Max Hastings, continues such eminence. The first perspectives talk each academic year in the latter 1990s was styled the Colonel Robert Roberge Memorial Lecture which recognized a respected former member of the Army War College faculty. Opening annual presentations in this century, including the one here tonight, are designated the General of the Army Omar Nelson Bradley Memorial Lectures. They not only honor a distinguished Army officer, but also show our gratitude for his generous contributions of historical papers, photos, maps, and artifacts to our institution beginning in our early years. Perspectives topics have usually ranged from the Civil War through World War II to the present. Some cover the peacetime army in the 19th and 20th centuries. A few have ranged back to earlier periods, such as the Mexican War, the War of 1812, the Revolutionary War, and the French and Indian Wars. The most distant in time, at least that I can recall, is how superior gunpowder enabled Spanish galleons to dominate the Indian Ocean in the 1500s. We originally held those lectures in the main reading room in Upton Hall, which is now the Bradley Auditorium. In the mid-1980s, the presentations moved upstairs to our own auditorium in Upton Hall room 201. We occasionally shifted to Bliss Hall, Reynolds Theater, or the Eisenhower Room of Latorte View Community Center. In 2004, AHEC deployed here to the eastern part 
of Carlisle Barracks and perspectives reopened in what is currently the main reading room in Ridgeway Hall. Seven years later, we transfer down the long corridor to our present reading room and to our present meeting room. Wherever the place, whatever the topic, whoever the speaker, our lecture series objective remains the same, to contribute to AHEC's mission of sharing the military history and heritage of the U.S. Army with the Army War College, with the Army History Program, with the Army, with the Armed Forces, and with the American public, the scholarly public, the educated public, the interested public, the general public. The Perspectives in Military History series has done so for 50 years. We resume our next half century here tonight. With great pleasure, I relay the podium to Dr. Crane, AHEC's Chief of Historical Services, himself a former Perspectives lecturer who will introduce our distinguished speaker, Sir Max Hastings. And I thank you. Wow, what an honor to be sandwiched between Dick Summers and Max Hastings. <laughs> what a deal. Uh, I'm up here because I'm also the vice president of the Omar Ann Bradley Foundation. Who the not only were the Bradleys very generous with their artifacts and with their papers, uh, we also received a multi-million dollar bequest from the family will, which has funded this program. It also funds uh, research grants for Army officers studying mathematics and history and a number of other programs as well. So the Bradley legacy will live on through the foundation for many, many years. The Omar N. Bradley lecture has featured, we've always tried to, to get the very best of speakers, and many of you in this audience have heard them. We've had, uh, we, we had astronaut Buzz Aldrin, we've had Pulitzer Prize winners David Hackett Fisher, James McGregor Burns, Rick Atkinson. Uh, one of the things I want to bring up is that those of you who will be privileged enough to get a copy of uh, Max's book, we still have some left, I know, uh, it's dedicated to Rick Atkinson. Uh, a colleague of both. Uh, Max is like Rick. Uh, they are both historians we are very jealous of because uh, they are great storytellers as well as writers, though Max speaks with a funnier accent than Rick does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, perhaps that's because they both began as journalists. Uh, Max covered Vietnam as a reporter on the ground and rode out of the embassy on the last afternoon of the evacuations from the, that compound in 1975. Uh, he was also the first journalist into Port Stanley during the Falklands War, another conflict that has benefited from his probing analysis and his vivid prose. He has written 26 books, while also serving as editor of the Daily Telegraph and the Evening Standard. Uh, I was doing, searching around the web for all of Max Hastings' propaganda, and there's a lot of it out there. <laughs> Uh, it's amazing. I, I couldn't, can't go through the whole list of all the awards he's gotten, but he's been knighted for his service to journalism, has won numerous book awards, including the Somerset Mom Award for Nonfiction, the Royal United Service Institute's Westminster Medal for his lifetime contributions in military literature, and the much-coveted Pritzker Military Library Literature Award for Lifetime Achievement in Military Writing. Max is also a very diligent researcher who spent many days here and it's a real honor to all of us here at AHEC to see our resources used so well 
to help recreate, create such a moving narrative of the great tragedy that was the Vietnam War. You are all in for a real treat. I give you Sir Max Hastings. Thank, thank you so much, uh, dear Colin, and thank you, Richard. I can't tell you how much at home I feel here because this wonderful facility has played such a huge part in my life and my researches over many years, and it's an enormous privilege to be speaking here um, in the name of Omar Bradley because um, he's a general whom I always admired immensely from World War II. And I think it's incredibly nice of all of you to bear with my accent tonight, hearing me talk about a war that some of you may think um, is your property that uh, I may be trespassing on your turf. But I hope that um, you'll bear patiently with me tonight. On the 28th of May, 1968, Michael Minahan, a 20-year-old machine gunner in Vietnam, wrote to his folks at home. Today, we are ninth day in the field, and there isn't much to say, because all we are doing is walking in the mountains looking for gooks. I thought I would drop you a line to say everything is fine. Five days later, however, it stopped being fine. Menahan's parents in Marlborough, Massachusetts, received a telegram. From Marine Corps Commandant, deeply regret to confirm that your son died 2nd June he sustained fragmentation wounds to the body from friendly airstrikes which fell short of the target area. His remains will be prepared, encased, and shipped at no expense to you, accompanied by an escort either to a funeral home or national cemetery selected by you. In addition, you will be reimbursed to an amount not to exceed $500 towards funeral and interment expenses. Please wire, collect to Marine Corps headquarters your wishes. 16,899 such telegrams were received in homes across the land in 1968, over 300 a week. By the end of the war, in May 1975, 58,220 of Michael Menahan's compatriots had died, together with 18 Russians, 14 North Koreans, 771 Chinese, and more than 2 million Vietnamese, around 40 for every American corpse, together with numberless more Cambodian and Lao people. This bloodbath in a succession of conflicts that lasted three decades far exceeded the human cost of the 21st century's wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. Moreover, Vietnam made a cultural impact upon its times greater than any modern strife. During its last phase especially, it roused the dismay, and in some cases revulsion, of hundreds of millions of Western people, destroying one US president and contributing to the downfall of a second. In the wave of protest against authority, which swept the West in the 1960s, rejection of old sexual morality and enthusiasm for pot and LSD became conflated with lunges against capitalism and imperialism, of which Vietnam appeared to dissenters an uncommonly ugly manifestation. Moreover, many older Americans who lacked sympathy for any of these causes came to oppose the war because they saw themselves deceived by their own government 
about an enterprise doomed to fail. The 1975 fall of Saigon to the North Vietnamese Army inflicted humiliation upon the planet's most powerful nation. Peasant revolutionaries had prevailed over Western will, wealth, and hardware. The stairway up which, on the evening of 29th of April, fugitive ascended to a rooftop helicopter secured a place among the symbolic images of that era. For me, as for all my generation of correspondents, the struggle was among the foremost experiences of our careers. I was one of those flown out of the embassy that tumultuous, terrified day. And even before I first saw Vietnam, in January 1968, I was among a group of foreign journalists who visited the White House. Seated in the cabinet room, we were addressed by President Lyndon Johnson about his commitment to the war. That morning, his personality seemed no less formidable for being close to the caricature. Some of you like blondes, some of you like redheads, and some of you maybe don't like women at all, he declared in that deadweight drawl, gesticulating constantly to emphasize his points and making broad pencil strokes on a notepad. I'm here to tell you what kind I like. I'm prepared to meet Ho Chi Minh anytime in a nice hotel with nice food, and we can sit down and talk to settle this thing. After making his pitch, this big, inescapably impressive man left the room abruptly without taking questions. We were preparing to leave when suddenly the president uh, put his head around the door again. Now, before you all go, he said almost coyly, I want to ask, do any of you feel any different from anything you'd read or heard about me before you came? We were stunned into silence by this glimpse of the awesome vulnerability of this president of the United States. In those days, Vietnam represented in the world's consciousness prodigies of both natural beauty and man-made horror. Let me recount to you a minuscule wartime incident such as was repeated 10,000 times. One morning in August 1964, Lieutenant Phan Nam of the South Vietnamese Airborne was leading his platoon in search of communist guerrillas. Amid a ravaged village, he saw a young woman sitting silent on the floor of a wrecked house holding a wicker basket. Her eyes looked straight ahead in a blank, stupefied stare. Nam asked why she lingered in the midst of a battlefield. She remained silent, her stunned eyes emitting a flash of terror. Suddenly, as if performing a gymnastic exercise, she thrust out the basket towards me. It contained two sets of clothes, a headscarf, two gold necklaces, and a pair of earrings. A soldier motioned the girl away, but Nam called her back, holding out the basket. Her hands trembled so violently that she was unable to take it, and instead, sobbing, began to unbutton her blouse. The young man was deeply embarrassed. She had read his rejection of her most valuable property as a sign that instead he wanted her body. What kind of a life had she experienced that she would offer herself to a soldier who could be her younger brother, while tears ran down her terrified face? Nam persuaded the girl 
to follow his platoon to a nearby river, crowded with sampans holding fugitives from the fighting. People were calling out, among them a voice that screamed, lie, lie. This was an old woman who recognized Lieutenant Nam's traumatized acquaintance. The girl stopped, as if she was trying to summon up a memory from a past life. Then she cried, mother, mother, our house has burned down, our house is gone. The southern officer described her walking away towards the water like a person in a trance. This is what wars, all so-called wars among the people, are like. For civilians, and especially women, who are not fast jet pilots or Green Berets, but instead victims, whether in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. Between 1945 and 75, such tiny tragedies were repeated countless times in Indochina. Most foreign eyewitnesses decided that most of these were the fault of first the French and then of the Americans or their South Vietnamese clients, unleashing devastating fire and air power. Yet a central theme of the book that I've written is that blame must rightfully be shared with the communists who committed numberless atrocities in pursuit of a revolution that wrought untold misery upon their own people. Photographs exist which have become notorious of a South Vietnamese police chief shooting dead a captured Viet Cong during the 1968 Tet Offensive, of a screaming child fleeing naked after a 1972 South Vietnamese napalm strike, of the homes of peasants set afire by American soldiers. Yet the policy of omerta, silence, pursued by all communist regimes, well served that of Ho Chi Minh. No pictures were ever published of a Vietnamese being buried alive before his fellow villagers for the mere crime of being a small landlord. He pleaded for a merciful gunshot and was told contemptuously by his murderers that they saved bullets for the imperialists. No photographer recorded the many hundreds of innocents killed in cold blood and buried in mass graves during the communist occupation of Hue during the 1968 Tet Offensive. Nobody in modern Vietnam, where tourists are so warmly welcomed, is permitted to speak about the thousands killed as class enemies during the first years of Ho Chi Minh's rule in the North. An American advisor, George Banville, described a typical episode during the later struggle in the South in which a certain Miss Ahn, a typist at his headquarters in the Mekong Delta, was seized one night at a parent's home. Her head was beaten in with a rifle butt, her young brother stabbed to death because she refused to assist an attack on the US compound. The officer wrote, she was maybe 20 years old, devout Christian, very pretty, very much a lady. My team used to sit on the porch in the morning and watch her stroll into work in a long flowing Audi with a matching umbrella protecting her alabaster skin from the sun. She ignored their stares, and you could only guess that maybe she disliked these foreign devils admiring her beauty, or maybe not. Likewise, advisor Mike Sutton described to me landing in a helicopter in a hamlet where they found a limp figure hanging from ropes lashed to a tree. 
The village chief, disemboweled during the night, his wife had been less artistically murdered, their son castrated. My own point is not to suggest that the United States and the corrupt and incompetent Saigon regime, which it supported, were the heroes of the Vietnam Wars. Merely that, as usual with all historical events, neither side commanded a monopoly of virtue or misconduct. We should hold back from anointing the communists, the good guys, as did naive young Western protesters back in the 1960s. While Ho Chi Minh's people deserved their triumph over the French colonialists, I argue that neither side much deserved victory in what came afterwards. Let me summarize the chronology. The French colonized Vietnam in the 1880s, lost it to the Japanese in World War II, and then in 1945, embarked upon an almost deranged attempt to regain control in the face of a vigorous communist nationalist movement led by Ho Chi Minh. When Mao Zedong secured stewardship of neighboring China in 1949, he threw support behind these so-called Viet Minh. The French suffered soaring losses and defeats until in November 1953, they launched an operation to lure the enemy into a battle on their terms by fortifying a chain of low hills called Dien Bien Phu. <laughs> there, over the course of the ensuing five months, they suffered catastrophe. Ho's military chief, General Giap, mobilized 60,000 peasant porters to manhandle two-ton artillery pieces 500 miles across some of the densest and steepest country in the world to ravage the French camp. The saga ended in surrender of survivors of the 12,000-man garrison to the raggedy-assed communist army. At the ensuing Geneva Conference on Indochina, what was amazing was that the Chinese and Russians proposed a partition of Vietnam instead of insisting that following Ho Chi Minh's victory at Dien Bien Phu, the whole country should be surrendered to him. The explanation, ironic in the light of later events, was that following US intervention in the recent Korean War, the communist powers were desperate to avoid an Asian replay. Beijing and Moscow told the North Vietnamese, as we shall hereafter call them, to content themselves with half a loaf and wait for the South to fall into their hands when elections were held and the Americans lost interest. A hitherto unknown South Vietnamese, a Catholic anti-communist named Diem, who had ingratiated himself with the French, and more important with influential American co-religionists, including Congressman John F. Kennedy, was installed as ruler in Saigon, while Ho Chi Minh's Politburo assumed power in Hanoi. The communist regime implemented its ideology with conspicuous brutality. Hunger, privation, oppression, and sometimes starvation became the common lot of North Vietnamese, though their plight and occasional revolts were invisible to the world. Amid food rationing, there was a desperate search for taste treats, which included stewed rat with saffron, 
grilled rat with lemon leaves, locusts, grasshoppers, beetles, silkworm larvae. No pet was safe. When 11-year-old boy's family was moving home, he hugged a cherished pooch that he was told to leave behind. He told me decades later, some strangers took it away in the morning and I understood they were going to kill it. Dog was said to taste best if the flesh was beaten and softened before the animal was killed. In the relatively rich South, almost everyone had enough to eat. But the Diem regime persecuted its enemies, promoted Catholics in an overwhelmingly Buddhist country, and ruled with abysmal incompetence. Though both Vietnams became rival tyrannies, Ho Chi Minh's possessed notable advantages. He had secured monopoly ownership of Vietnamese nationalism, heroic stature as victor over the French. The cruelties and blunders committed by his regime were concealed from the world by ironclad sentiment. The war slowly started up again in the South with so-called Viet Cong taking the place of the Viet Minh. In the beginning, the new guerrillas reflected peasant hostility to the Diem regime, spontaneous activism by Southern communists rather than being driven by Hanoi or even Beijing um, as Washington deluding itself. Only in 1962 did the North Vietnamese begin to provide serious sponsorship. Two years later, the US decided that unless it dramatically boosted military aid, the South was doomed to collapse, which President Johnson believed unacceptable to the American people. In 1965, he began dispatching major combat units on a scale that climaxed four years later with half a million troops waging a struggle against mostly regular communist formations dispatched from the North. American soldiers and Marines were supported by 61,000 Allied troops, Australians, South Koreans, and such like, together with 600,000 South Vietnamese in uniform. Each month, US forces unleashed an average of 128,000 tons of munitions at a cost of $2.5 billion. The culture shock was huge for young Americans meeting Asia for the first time. Private Reg Edwards' first surprise had nothing to do with death and devastation, but instead with finding that even tiny children smoked, which seemed to him horrible. The first Vietnamese words I learned to say were, cigarettes are bad for your health. In the boondocks, many men were nervous of snakes, disconcerted by the gibbon shrieking in the trees. They loathed the ubiquitous leeches. The Johnson administration also embarked on an air campaign against the North, which hurt its own cause far more than that of the communists. The bombing united Ho Chi Minh's people, as the earlier unification struggle had not, rather in the fashion that the Nazi Blitz brought together the British people in 1940. Ho Chi Minh unsettled industry that air attack made small impact. And although completely contrary to Western perceptions, the Russians and Chinese were reluctant to lavish resources on the struggle and had amazingly little influence over the Hanoi Politburo. In the face of US bombing, Moscow dispatched flat guns and SAM-2 missiles 
which shot down almost 1,000 US aircraft. In the eyes of the world, the war making of a giant, symbolized by the B-52 bomber, which killed tens of thousands of Vietnamese, seemed repellent, contrasted with the courage of communist soldiers wearing coolie hats and tar rubber sandals, their women digging trenches and repairing bomb damage. In Hanoi, in the winter of 1966, Premier Pham Van Dong inquired urbanely a visiting New York Times journalist, Harrison Salisbury, on how long do you Americans want to fight, Mr. Salisbury? One year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. We should be glad to accommodate you. As for the ground war, an infantryman wrote, for many soldiers, Vietnam was depression, despair, a valley of terror. Much of the anxiety came not from the enemy, not from the jungle. It came from being taken away from wives and friends and family and being totally out of control. Many firefights were brief. In one that lasted just 30 seconds, 15 of 35 patrolling Marines were killed or wounded. Often, a handful of VC used their weapons for only a minute or two and then pulled out before artillery could work on them. Amid incoming fire, the great Tim O'Brien wrote of the stiff thump of the bullet, like a fist, the way it knocks the air out of you and makes you cough, how the sound of the gunshot arrives about 10 years later, and the dizzy feeling, the smell of yourself, the things you think about and say and do right afterwards, the way your eyes focus on a tiny white pebble or blade of grass, and how you start thinking, oh man, that's the last thing I'll ever see, that pebble, that blade of grass, which makes you want to cry. There were booby traps, booby traps, booby traps, what the 21st century calls IEDs, on how they hated them all. Most were manufactured from scavenged US ordnance. A 60 millimeter mortar round removed a foot, while an 81 millimeter took off a leg and maybe some fingers and an elbow. A 105 millimeter round would take both legs and often an arm. A 155 vaporized its immediate victim below the waist and almost certainly killed anybody else within 20 yards. Grunts engaged in macabre debates about which limb they'd soonest lose. Most claimed a preference for keeping knees and what was above them. In one three-month period, a single company lost 57 legs to mines and booby traps, which, as an officer bleakly observed, amounted to almost a leg a day. Among some terrible deeds, virtuous people deserve emphasis. Texan Shirley Purcell was a veteran army nurse summoned to active duty in 1966. She took a passionate pride in her work. I really didn't have a political commitment, but there were American troops there that needed help. She was thinking, for instance, of an infantryman who triggered a bouncing Betty mine. This young man had literally been ripped in half from his knees up and from just below his ribs down. It was like hamburger meat. All the internal organs were just chopped up, but his legs were perfect laying on the litter and his arms, hand, upper chest were perfect and his mind was still very much alert. He was looking up at us and the sense that went over that entire unit 
with that young man lying in the emergency room dying because there was absolutely nothing we could do for him was like nothing I've ever experienced. He looked up at me and said, well, how does it look? I had to tell him, it doesn't look good, but you won't be alone. That was really all we had to offer him, that he would not be alone. Shirley had been a teetotaler all her life, but in the officer's club at July, she started on screwdrivers, and who could blame her? And later, she could never bring herself to watch MASH on TV because her memories imposed a veto on laughter. Could the US involvement have had a different outcome? More than a few Americans who went to Vietnam were inspired by high ideals of service. One of them, that fine officer, Colonel Sid Berry, wrote home in 1966. I would be nowhere else. I'm convinced of the rightness and importance of our being here. I've come to have great respect and affection for the Vietnamese. They do surprisingly well under circumstances more difficult than our country has ever imagined. But a long road lies ahead. I hope that our country and our countrymen have the maturity, stamina, patience, guts, faith to stay in the fight as long as is necessary. A colleague recalled the words of legendary manic advisor, Colonel John Paul Van, who devoted most of the last decade of his life to the war. John said that we had assisted the Vietnamese to rise high in the sky in a heavier and air than machine and must help them come down as gently as possible rather than crash. Asked what the difference would be, he responded, there are more survivors that way. The two men once landed a tiny chopper at an outpost that had been overrun during the night. They crammed into the cockpit a badly wounded South Vietnamese soldier and then headed fast for a hospital. The man nonetheless died on the flight. And when they landed, Van stood banging his fist furiously on the plexiglass, saying again and again, just another 20 minutes, just another 20 minutes, and he would have made it. His companion thought, this is a guy whom John never met in his life, yet he cared terribly about him because he was on our side. The anecdote is moving, and yet the American commitment was fatally flawed by its foundation, not upon the interests of the Vietnamese people, but instead on the perceived requirements of US domestic and foreign policy. An American prisoner, Doug Ramsey, who spent a dreadful seven years in a bamboo cage in the jungle in the hands of the Viet Cong, once told his interrogators that he thought his compatriots' presence in their country was prompted 10% by concern for the Vietnamese and the rest by determination to check Mao Zedong. His puzzled captors demanded, in that case, why do you not go and fight him in China? We do not like the Chinese either. The decisions for escalation by successive US administrations command the bewilderment of posterity because key players recognize the rickety, rackety character of the regime on which they depended to provide an indigenous facade for an American armored edifice. Yet great states have an unsurprising predilection for fighting the kind of wars that suit their means rather than the ones they've got. America's leaders deluded themselves 
that the identified social, cultural, political difficulties could be overcome by an overwhelming application of firepower, as if by using a flamethrower to weed a flower border. Since this was the core policy failure, it seems to me wrong to lay extravagant blame upon America's generals, unimpressive though some of them were. David Elliott, a wise civilian who spent many years in Vietnam for round, said to me, there never was a clever way to fight the war. World War II paratroop hero Jim Gavitt warned at the start, if a village is fought over five or six times, a great many civilians will die. The whole pattern of life will be altered. As the war continues to drag on, we ourselves destroy the objective for which we fight. Even before considering the consequences of bombs and shells, Washington's decision makers failed to recognize the cultural impact of a foreign host upon an Asian peasant society. A local secretary earned more working for the Americans than did a South Vietnamese colonel. Bulldozers and airfields, armored vehicles, watchtowers, sandbags, concertina wire ravaged the environment even before guns began to fire helicopters to swirl overhead, huge soldiers to purchase the sexual favors of tiny women. This was not a curse unique to Vietnam, but even in the 21st century, overhangs all Western military interventions in far-flung places, however well-intentioned. The communists enjoyed the critical propaganda advantage that they were almost invisible to most of the people most of the time. They set a light footprint on the land, contrasted with that of the US. Four million tons of American bombs fell on the South. To this day, Western military commanders fail to understand the folly of sending their soldiers to wage wars among the people, wearing sundasses, helmets, and body armor that give them the appearance of robots, empowered to kill, yet impossible to recognize as fellow human beings alienation is compounded by lack of a common language. In both North and South, the communists propagated terror and confiscated personal freedom. For all the foolish adulation heaped by the Western left upon Ho Chi Minh, he presided over a fundamentally inhumane totalitarian regime. Yet its mandate seemed more credible than that of the Saigon generals. While few Vietnamese had much interest in Marxist-Leninist theory, many were seduced by the promise of a revolution that would cast off the yoke of landlords and moneylenders, expel foreigners. A southerner said to me, the communists could ceaselessly remind us how humiliating it was to be occupied by the Americans. The other side had the monopoly of patriotism. A key lesson from Vietnam for the West's 21st century struggles in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, is that it's hard to exploit mere battlefield successes to build sustainable societies. That fine American officer, H.R. McMaster, once described to me his successes commanding an armored cab regiment in 2004 Iraq. He concluded sadly, the problem was there was nothing to join up to. Former Saigon correspondent Neil Sheehan says, in South Vietnam too, there never was anything to join up to. 
In the absence of credible local governance, winning firefights was and always will be meaningless. Yet if the war could not have been won on the battlefield, the US might have contrived to inflict less damage on its stature as a standard bearer for civilized values. It's a common illusion that beneath fatigues, young Westerners, including the British, fighting abroad, remain decent hometown boys. Some do, others do not. Soldiers are trained to kill. Combat obliges them to live a semi-animal existence. Some warriors come to hold cheap the lives of bystanders, people they don't know, especially when their own casualties are high. In Vietnam, soldiers were often baffled by rules of engagement designed to curb civilian casualties. It's very hard to fine-tune the conduct of half-educated young men in possession of lethal weapons who are, like most soldiers, most of the time, hot or cold, filthy, hungry, suffering constipation or diarrhea, thirsty, lonely, weary, ignorant, holding their nerves and rifles on hair triggers because only thus can they themselves hope to survive. Soviet and Nazi precedent suggests that merciless occupiers can suppress resistance by force. In Vietnam, the US Army contrived to be sufficiently intrusive and racially contemptuous, also intermittently murderous, to earn the hostility of the population, yet inadequately savage to deter many peasants from supporting the communists. Excesses, while not universal, were sufficiently common to show that many Americans considered Asians inferior beings, their lives worth less than those of round eyes. It was a terrible symbolic mistake to allow Vietnamese to shine the humblest PFC's boots and to sweep his quarters. In the later stages of the struggle, from 1969 onwards, guerrilla warfare gave way to conventional clashes between large forces in which it's possible that the US Army might have defeated the communists had not the will of the American people and the commitment of many of its soldiers already been broken. Even had firepower prevailed, however, it's hard to envisage to what good end. The Saigon regime still commanded negligible popular support. There was still nothing to join up to. When a South Vietnamese officer discussed his country's hundred-odd generals with comrades, they concluded that around 20 were competent and honest, while 10 were both monstrously corrupt and irredeemably incompetent. In the midst of a discussion with the Americans about how the morale of Saigon troops might be improved, one South Vietnamese general's contribution was to propose reintroducing the French army system of mobile field brothels. Arguably, the people of Vietnam had to experience the communist model, as they did at dreadful cost after the North Vietnamese achieved final victory in 1975, before they could reject it. The war cost the US $150 billion, much less than Iraq two generations later. Yet the true price was paid not in mere money, nor even in lost lives, but instead in the national trauma that it inflicted. Neil Sheehan observes that 
previous historical experience that showed Americans that foreign wars were a good thing. You won, you were welcomed home, then Vietnam came along and a lot of people got killed for nothing. The US Army and Marine Corps took 15 years to recover their morale, cohesion, and professionalism. The American people's belief, both in their moral rectitude and military invincibility, created by the outcome of World War II, matched by an economic success so awesome that it seemed only logical to believe that it was reflected the will of a higher being, was sorely injured. General Walt Boomer says, the Vietnam War did more to change this country than anything in our recent history. It created a suspicion and mistrust we've never been able to redeem. Major Don Hudson, who commanded an infantry company in 1970, said of the disillusionment of US veterans, they thought they were going home with their uniforms on and their little medals and everybody would be really happy to see them. And they found out that was not true. Another fine veteran, Corman David Rogers, is among many who still looks back with profound emotion. He said to me, the experience was huge. I had a lot of trouble coming home and going to church. I couldn't confess. I felt dirty. I'd been part of killing. The only memory that still matters to Rogers, like millions of his former comrades, is that of his own platoon. To be able to say that as a corpsman, I was there for them. Around one third of his people were killed or wounded. Living close to Washington, he sometimes visits the wall at five, six in the morning. I won't go there when there are others around. To me, it's a big headstone. I'm glad to have it. Moments come back. Seeing a tree line up at Martha's Vineyard, I thought, that's like Vietnam. The prettiest sights I saw there were choppers over tree lines. Reading writers like Neil Sheehan, I got so angry with them, the people who ran America. They knew what was happening. We didn't. I did the pace count, and that was it. Counterfactuals are seldom profitable, either to historians or readers, but it is interesting to speculate on the consequences if Hanoi had held back from sponsoring armed struggle in the South. The local Viet Cong could probably have been contained. In many other Asian countries between 1960 and 1990, authoritarian military rule gradually gave way to democracy. Absent the war, Vietnamese energy and ingenuity could have enabled the southern economy to prosper. Success justifies all. Nobody outside Pyongyang Yang today questions the legitimacy of South Korea because it's a functioning democracy with a dynamic economy. South Vietnam was no more and no less a credible independent state. Granted the same opportunities, it might too have preserved its status and prospered, but we shall never know. Meanwhile, only the so-called liberation struggle and Hanoi's military triumph conferred the prestige and legitimacy that have enabled the old southern regime to retain power to this day, clinging to fig leaves of the trappings of revolution. The conflict continues to define Vietnam, as surely as the Second World War does Russia, victories in the respective conflicts being the Communist Party's most conspicuous, indeed, frankly, almost only successes since 1917. 
1993, veteran David Rogers returned to Vietnam as a guest of its government, and he was taken to the area where his own unit had fought. He found himself fated by former Viet Cong, who were under orders to embrace Americans because they needed Congress to pass a trade deal. Rogers found himself reflecting, if all these guys wanted was a McDonald's, surely we could have worked this out a long time ago. <laughs> Modern Western tourists are disarmed by the warmth of the welcome they receive from Vietnamese, mostly unborn when the war was fought. This is partly because an overwhelming majority now recognize the virtues of democracy and the shortcomings of the alternative. President Obama received a rapturous reception when he visited Vietnam in 2015, contrasted with a very frosty one given a year later to China's President Xi. Visitors impressed by the glitzy towers of Saigon, the natural beauty of the countryside, often fail to notice the harsh rural poverty and absolute denial of freedom of speech. The rulers of 21st century Vietnam concede to their people some latitude to make money, but none to express political opinions, frankly, to debate the past. I write much in my book about the American so-called credibility gap during the war years, yet in Hanoi, mendacity remains institutionalized. A conspicuous lesson of the past century is that economic forces are at least as important as military ones in determining outcomes. North Vietnam's dead revolutionaries would recoil in disgust from modern Saigon. The name Ho Chi Minh City is falling from favor and will probably eventually vanish in the way that Leningrad has become St. Petersburg again. Its glittering shops, each one a temple of consumerism, first with brand names, jewelry, and designer clothes. I would argue that while the US lost the war militarily almost half a century ago, it has since seen its economic and cultural influence reverse this outcome, where America's armed forces fail with B-52s, defoliants, and spooky gunships. YouTube and Johnny Depp have proved irresistible. Chung San was a 13-year-old boy wrestling playfully with a friend in a field in North Vietnam on the day in 1975 that his village loudspeakers announced triumphantly that Saigon had been liberated. He wrote long afterwards in a book entitled The Winning Side, according to what we have been taught at school, this would be the end of two decades of misery for South Vietnam. I thought we must quickly set about educating its misguided children. Yet in 2012, that same boy observed, many people who have carefully reviewed the past are stunned when they realize that it feels like the side that was really liberated was the North. South Vietnam, he argues, has proved historic victor because its values increasingly dominate the country. As for Americans, General Walt Boomer mused aloud to me, what was it all about? It bothers me that we didn't learn too many lessons. If we had, we would not have gone into Iraq. Thank you all very much.
Right, everybody, now you can start telling me where I got it all wrong. <laughs> Who'd like to kick off? You bet. Okay, this one does work. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've got time for some questions and answers. Uh, we do have a big crowd tonight, so if I can ask everyone, uh, if you do raise your hand, please limit yourself to one question at a time. Uh, if you've got another one, we can come back to you, of course. So where can we start out tonight? All right, we have one over here on the side. This comes under the category of uh, nothing to join up to. Uh, over on Derry Street here in Harrisburg, they bring at uh, the VFW Hall. They bring in a, a guy every month to talk about what he did in Vietnam. And I've been to about 20 of these. And after a while, you notice that everybody had a job to do. They did the job, came home. But I remember talking to somebody. You know, none of this seems to be headed towards accomplishing. All these people did jobs, but didn't really head towards accomplishing something. Did you ever come across any of the writings where somebody said, this is what we're trying to accomplish in Vietnam? Did I come across some of the writings of? Uh, of any, did you have any idea of what we were trying to accomplish? The, the, um, it was all these out. people did all these jobs. It was spelled out many times in Washington that the phrase was, we want an independent, non-communist Vietnam. But I think one thing that's very striking, I, I'd say two things related to this. One, the lesson to me of the whole thing, just to expand slightly on what I said earlier, is whether we're doing this in Iraq or Afghanistan, I think, one, it's hopeless to see this as predominantly military issues. There has to be a military dimension. But killing bad guys alone is not the answer. You have to see this as fundamentally political and cultural with a military dimension. And to that end, I would never put um, soldiers in overall command, because that suggests, again, the soldiers have a part to play. But how can you possibly expect generals to have an understanding of the cultural and political and social issues of whether it's Asia or the Middle East? You can't. So I think if you can't see your way through the social and cultural issues in any of these countries, then you're wasting your time getting people killed out. All right, do we have any other questions? Right here yeah. in the middle. There obviously were a number of situations in which the path could have been altered. So do you have any insight into why <laughs> it was continued down such a uh, counterproductive path? Well, the first thing to remember is those of us, because I, I lived in the United States in, the, in 67, 68, so I saw what one does have to remember and one has to understand is two things, which I think are very important. What I'm always trying to do as a historian, the biggest mistake some historians make is that they see things in 21st century terms. And what I do is I shut my eyes and I try and see things as they saw them then in the 1940s and 1950s. And two things. One, there was a genuine communist threat that even in places like Greece, France, Italy, there was real fears in the late 1940s and early 50s that the communists were going to gain control of these countries. And all over the world, the communists were pressing forward. Now, this doesn't alter the fact that 
the United States and the West completely misread the situation in Indochina. But there was a genuine communist threat. And the United States, with its extraordinary economic and military power in the wake of World War II, nothing seemed impossible. And it was, seemed very difficult. First of all, the president sitting in the White House, nothing seemed impossible. And second, who wanted to be the one to tell the American people that the full might of the American armed forces could not see off some raggedy-ass guerrilla army? Um, those things in the 1950s and 60s, uh, these were, and I have a sort of sympathy, one still thinks that Kennedy, and for that matter, going back to Eisenhower, and were completely wrong to get America into this. But I can see where they were coming from. I can see why they thought what they thought. And again, to come back, because I lived here through the whole era of protest, and all these kids who thought that Che Guevara and Fidel Castro, and, and, um, and they had pictures of, of Marzi Tung, one of the great mass murderers of the 20th century, all over their the, the rooms at, at college. And it was an area that was, there was huge naivety on one side. There was naivety at every level. There was naivety among the people who thought you could sort this out with B-52s. And there was naivety among the kids who thought that the other side were the good guys. Yes, sir. So um, you mentioned that there was a little bit, you mentioned Iraq and what we're doing there. Um, would you compare and contrast uh, what you believe um, Vietnam was to the soldier uh, since it, you know, we still had a draft versus now in Iraq we have an all-volunteer force? Well, that's, that's well, the first thing to remember um, is the scale of casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan is incomparably low. I mean, the shock I got, I thought I knew quite a lot about Vietnam, but I've written a chapter in my book about a battle that I doubt if anybody in this room has ever heard of, called Dido, at the beginning of May um, 1968, um, up just south of the DMZ, in which in three days, a Marine battalion was more or less wiped out. Um, they lost um, 81 killed, and um, I forget how many hundred wounded, and they ended up with one unwounded officer and um, 150 men still capable of fighting. Uh, and nothing, yeah, there were moments in Iraq when people took some relatively heavy casualties, but nothing on that scale. And secondly, um, they were volunteers, and people don't get in the same way in Britain, that um, the British people are not thrilled by our losses in Afghanistan and Iraq. But um, they said, well, these guys, signed up, they wanted to go and do this, and if they got killed, they got killed. Um, and it is completely different if it's a, if it's a drafty army. And of course, mind you, we have to keep another sense of proportion, which Con Crane's very good at pointing out to me, is that it was overwhelmingly a volunteer army in Vietnam, and that only a small minority of those who fought were draftees. But the fact remained, a lot of the kids out there protesting um, were, yes, they didn't think the war was a great idea, but they were also absolutely terrified that they themselves were going to find themselves out there in the boonies. Yeah, I'll leave you guys to decide where you want to take the microphone. My question is about the uh, Army of the Republic of Vietnam, and specifically after the U.S. left, um, at least the uh, U.S. fighting forces left. Um, at the fall uh, of Vietnam, I know from what I've read, at least, uh, one of the uh, most effective divisions at least had to stand um, in Juan Lac, um, the 18th Division of the Army of the Republic of Vietnam uh, had a terrible reputation, yet they 
stood and fought and uh, held up the uh, um, North Vietnamese advance for several days unexpectedly. Um, how did, did we get the uh, um, Arvin wrong? Um, were, were, were they better than we thought they were or were they worse than they thought they were or they a mixed bag? Some, you're absolutely right about the standards one lot. And Arvin survivors look back on it with great pride to this day because obviously it was a vast humiliation, the defeat in 75. But yeah, there were some units that were very brave. And um, what was so ghastly for those guys that the victors write the history. And um, it is terribly sad that some of those guys, I always remember, because I used to spend quite a lot of time up in the Central Highlands, and I remember going to visit in 1974 a unit um, up near Pleiku, a ranger unit, which was absolutely cut to pieces during the last campaign. And I always wondered what happened to these guys, and they were quite a good unit. But the victors write the history, and we shall never know. And in fact, I was lunching yesterday with one of my heroes, a wonderful man that some of you might have heard of, called Merle Pribbenhart, who's a former CIA officer who probably knows more about Vietnam um, and has spent more time translating Vietnamese documents than, um, than anybody else. I mean, his contribution to historians like me is absolutely amazing. And I was saying to Merle, who totally agreed with me, that we shall never really know exactly what the hell happened in the 1974-75 campaign. Because um, various people who try and impose coherence, it became completely incoherent. And of course, all the documents were lost, and all the war diaries are lost, and most of them probably weren't worth it anyway. And in fact, one of the things, the longer I write military history, and the more I realize, we are making stabs at trying to figure out what happened. But a lot of the time, we're groping about in a fog. And we're trying to impose, war is essentially incoherent. In the phrase of a, a leading British commander in World War II, he said, war is organized confusion. And sometimes, if you want to explain what war is like, if you make it sound too coherent, you're getting it wrong, because it bloody well isn't coherent a lot of the time. Yes, this is somewhere around 1968, and I was running a ground-based simulation designing new fighter airplanes, and we were bringing in pilots to fly the simulator, and one of these guys was a pilot that had just come back from Vietnam, and this is before SAMs, I guess, and we didn't have smart bombs at that time, and he described flying missions in an F-4 against a bridge that the Viet Cong were using to transport goods into the south, and they had flown something like 50 missions and had been unable to take out this bridge. And the Viet Cong were piling junk in the road, approaching the bridge. And as they saw an F-4 coming over, they would blow this junk up into the air and try to take out the airplane. And he had gun camera film of a toilet going by the windscreen of his airplane. <laughs> so just, just to reinforce your point that firepower is not necessarily the answer. Well, it's one of, the, one of my favorite theses. There's somebody here, um, dear Dr. Tammy Biddle, who knows more about air power than any of the rest of us in this room. But um, one of my own themes, having studied air power quite extensively, air power is terrific against certain things, against um, armored columns moving in the open. It's absolutely devastating. It can annihilate them. But against dug-in troops and complex installations, and airmen throughout uh, the 20th century and in the 21st century, they will go on telling everybody that they can land a bomb on a dime and they can take all this out. Air power is a very important tool, but it is not the answer to everything. 
and one's seeing some of the horror stories I keep hearing even now about what goes on in Syria and Iraq, they still haven't got it right for all the vast sums of money they spend on the aircraft and the systems they're flying there. Uh, yes, I had a question. So, um, would you say that the military strategy in Vietnam was, uh, like in your analysis, um, deliberately hamstrung by the politicians, uh, by perhaps limiting rules of engagement? Well, the, um, the chiefs of staff afterwards tried to say that if they'd been allowed a free hand, that it would all have been okay. I can't say that I really um, buy into that view. Um, that I don't, nor do I totally, I love H.R. McMaster, but his thesis in his book, Dereliction of Duty, is that it was all the chiefs of staff's fault. Well, I don't buy that either, because in the end, the big decisions were made in the White House, and it was, um, I think, the pr successive presidents, and, um, and especially McNamara and so on, who have to bear a lot of responsibility. But um, the idea, the airmen said afterwards, that if only they'd be given a free hand, they could have squashed North Vietnam in no time. I don't buy that for a variety of reasons. Um, that one of them was the paucity of targets. I mean, I'm forgetting some exact figures, but let me give you one figure. That they worked out in the mid-60s that the communists were running their war in the South on 350 tons of supplies a day. Um, but all but 35 tons of that was being generated locally within South Vietnam. And therefore, only, only 35 tons a day needed to get down the Ho Chi Minh Trail in order to keep the show on the road. And um, the idea that when you've got negligible, I mean, Doug Ramsey, this foreign service officer who was a prisoner, and Doug Ramsey said um, all the time he was in his cage when he had heard about, um, about uh, um, uh, the Air Force saying they, that they could give them the chance, they could bomb the North Vietnamese back into the Stone Age. He said, I wanted to talk to these people and say, how can you possibly bomb, back, bomb people back in the Stone Age? You've never left it. Um, and, and it was, so there was plenty of blame to go around. But um, I think everybody has to look back on all this with a good deal of humility. That this was um, an, an appalling mess and pointing the finger. The one thing I won't go along with is I don't think that Westmoreland or Abrams were brilliant commanders. But Westmoreland was made sin eater for the whole United States war effort. And I don't believe that Alexander the Great could have actually won that war in that situation. I don't believe Patton or Ridgeway or any of them could have sorted it out at that time. Um, so I think you just have to be, I buy the line of David Elliott, who's written hugely, and I forget how many years he spent in Vietnam, but his writings about Vietnam are brilliant. And he just says there never was a clever way to do this, that this was... I passionately believe the, re the fundamental reason that the other side won is because they were Vietnamese. And it was the fact that you're up against, the fact they don't really like, um, didn't like having all these Americans around the place everywhere any more than they like having the British around in Afghanistan. I mean, I've accompanied British units um, wandering around villages in Afghanistan. And you don't have to be very smart to see the look of hate in their faces. Um, they just don't like foreigners much. They wish we'd all go away. And how can you blame them in view of when you're dropping four million tons of bombs on their country? You know that. Um, I'm going to leave you guys to work out which who gets the microphone. 
Uh, thank you for a very enlightening presentation. Uh, your optimism about the war is impressive. In, <laughs> in your research, did you uncover any of the different strategies that the Marines in I Corps yeah. in 67 and 68 differed significantly, in my judgment, from the policies of Mac v. Saigon and the effectiveness or not of the way the third Marine Amphibious Force from Da Nang tried to conduct its war? Um, I may meet my end in many ways, but I'm not going to meet it in the crossfire between the U.S. Marine Corps and the U.S. Army. Um, that, um, I, of course, one is well aware that the Marines thought with MedCap visits and all the rest of it, they'd, but if you talk to Vietnamese, which I did, and one of the things I really focused on in my research, I felt that one of the, one of the flaws in most of the books written about the war is they're mostly by Americans about Americans. And I tried to put the Vietnamese center stage, and you talk to them. And for example, none of them could ever see the distinction between Westmoreland's search and destroy and Abraham's clear and hold that they thought in Saigon there was a difference. In the same way with the Marines, I think all one can say is there were some enlightened commanders and enlightened units that did things better than others. And I think that applies to some US Army units and to some US Marine units. I'm not persuaded that the US Marine Corps had a comprehensive answer that MACV failed to, uh, fail to get their minds around. Ladies and gentlemen, we have one more, uh, one more question up here in the front. Such a broad subject, such a broad timeline of years. How did you have a historian, how did you want to approach this? How did you get so much material into what you ended up putting in the book? Well, with great difficulty. In fact, the first draft of my book was read by my favorite historian, who none of you, I don't think many of you have heard of, Sir Michael Hard, who's 96 years old <laughs> and has seen everything. And Michael Hard, when he read my first draft, um, he said, um, Dear boy, you have an angel in marble. You've made the mistake of putting in everything you found out. <laughs> and I had to lose, because I spent countless months trooping around the United States and uh, Vietnam interviewing people. And of course, it's agony that Sod's Law says that, um, says that it's the people you travel furthest to see that you end up <laughs> having to take out their stories or whatever. But what you do get, I often feel, when I started out writing books about war, which is a long time ago, um, I used to think that at the heart of the story was soldiers. Um, and you think you're writing about battles. But actually, an awful lot of what you're doing is writing about social history. Um, and the bits that fascinate me, I sometimes spend two or three, four hours sitting in little houses in the middle of North Carolina or whatever, talking to people about their experiences. And I find I'm as carried away by hearing about what their childhoods were like in Appalachia or something, out in West Virginia or something, um, as one is by anything they say about what happens to them in battles. So um, I think what, one really, what, what I would like to feel I've tried to do in this book is to give a feeling of what it was like, above all, for um, grunts from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or for um, Marines, or for... Uh, you know, I've got a lot of interviews with Russians uh, who served in air defense units in the north, which I, may say I found fascinating. Chinese railway engineers who also had a ghastly time. The, none of them enjoyed it. Any idea the other side enjoyed it more than the Americans? The other side found it pretty hellish too. But I never stop. Even I'm 72 years old, and I never stop being absolutely fascinated by listening to the stories. And I might add, 
by reading in this superlative archive here. A lot of the stories in my book are from oral transcripts of, of interviews, fascinating interviews of people now long dead. They've left a record here that is going to guide historians into the next century. And thank you all very, very much for being such a wonderful audience tonight. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA, is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events.